This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what are you drinking? Well, today I am drinking pure old-fashioned. I mean, you can't get any more throwback than what I'm drinking today. The stuff and substance of all of creation. Water. Water. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, it really makes creative. up some astronomical percentage of our body. Yeah. Uh, the stuff falls from the sky. I've heard that um, God endorses it. I don't mm-hmm. know what more you need to convince very, you to drink water. Very healthy of you. Mm, yeah. I try. What are you drinking? Um, the same thing, but in carbonated form with HEB endorsed grapefruit. So sparky water with grapefruit. Listen, we need to get a representative of HEB on this show, and we need to discuss uh, sparky water. I know it's not called sparky water. It's called something else, right? It's just sparkling water, but Hildy Stewart, a.k.a. Haley's daughter, calls it sparky water, so we do now. Which we think it's the cutest thing ever. But we need to get somebody from HEB like on the show and talk about, (laughs) you know, sparky water because this stuff, I mean, it's such a regular guest. It is our third friend. It is. It shows up often. And I'm not the only one. People talk about it a lot around here. We're weird. Yeah. And it's, uh, it doesn't, it shows up probably more than Dave and Karen, oddly. It just might. It, yeah. They're, they're tied. Yeah. Well, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Dave and Karen uh, are our favorite guests that we've never had on the show that I've never met, nor have I ever had their coffee to drink, but they own the little coffee shop behind you, right? If, yeah. And if you don't know who we're talking about, that means you need to go and listen to past episodes. So yeah, consider that back. a reason. Archives. Yeah. Archive it. <laughs> All right. Hey, Tish. Yes, you know, tell me your story. You know story. what's really cool? I have a story to share uh, with you. And it's a little bit of a... It's like a mea culpa a little bit on air. Oh. So there's going to be okay. a story. And then at the end, there's going to be a mea culpa. Okay. Um, so I've been working in Denver. You know this, right? I do. I've been slammed, just absolutely working around the clock. I think I spent the last uh, several, I can't remember how, I think I was back like maybe four days of this past two weeks, but I spent a lot of time there. And there's this really cool uh, church. It's called the Church of the Holy Ghost, which I know that kind of sounds like a Pentecostal church, but it's not. It's a Catholic church in downtown Denver. It was one block from the hotel where I'm staying. Um, it's one block from the hotel I stayed You know when I was working there last uh, at the beginning of the winter, and it's it's the same hotel, same church. Um, you know this go around, and so I jokingly say it has become my my second home parish. Mm-hmm. Amazing little parish, great peace priest, great people, and by the way, they have a sort of a folk mass service that's the most like Colorado Catholic on brand thing of all time. <laughs> like their music is so good, but it's like church music in a spaghetti western. It's perfect. (laughs) I love it so much. Anyway, so I was there for Ash Wednesday. And so I went to the Ash Wednesday service. It's a beautiful little service, of course. It was very full. I was, to my surprise, very full. They always um, are. Because it was, (laughs) well, it was 510 downtown. I just figured most people would sort of be in their home parish or whatever. Um, So we go through the whole service and I'm on my way out the door and I hear someone say, Hey, Seth. And I turn around. And I'm staring into the void, uh, just many, many people. And yeah. and then I hear, Seth, Seth. And so I look and I find the person who's saying my name. 
And she says to me, and I quote, don't worry, you don't know me. Oh, that's the not thing terrifying that, at I'm all. I'm like, that's not terrifying <laughs> at all. So anyway, um, so she comes and she says, hey, I am a uh, listener of A Drink with a Friend. I picked up your book. I would uh, love to talk with you if you have some time. My name is Frankie. Um, Frankie was a lovely human. She was very kind. She's a therapist doing amazing work, I'm sure. Um, and so we talked very, very briefly. I was with a, a friend. I introduced her to my friend. And um, unfortunately, and this is the bad news, I didn't have time. You know, we, we work like around the clock. And then I carve out an hour to go to church. And then I was like back at work. Um, and I worked all the way until I left to catch my flight, which I was almost late for. Um, so unfortunately, I had zero time to like sit down and, and, and chat with a friend, as we like to do here on A Drink With A Friend with Frankie. So Frankie, if you're out there listening, thank you for introducing yourself to me. Uh, that was amazing and unexpected. It was a joy, unexpected joy in the middle of uh, work. And uh, the mea culpa is, I'm really sorry, didn't, didn't have time for a follow-up conversation, but maybe some other time. Yeah. I mean, seeing as you travel a lot for work, it might happen again. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. So, I mean, isn't that cool though? You just, you're in cool. a random place and there's a, another human I that knows love, you. I love it when things like that happen. So uh, about 10 years ago when we were living in Oregon, I had this experience when I got, I think, a DM on Instagram or somewhere online. No, it was a comment on a blog post. And she said, I saw you the other day at Whole Foods, but I was too nervous to go say hi. So I just watched you instead. And my response was, that hmm, is so much worse. Creepy. That yeah. is so mm -hmm. much worse. You should have yeah. just come up and said hi. And of course, my immediate thought was, oh, no, I'm sure I was like griping at my kids or something, you know, because they were toddlers and <laughs> some yeah. stranger watching me be a stellar parent at a grocery store. Um, so kudos to Frankie for just being a regular person. 100%. 100%. I love that. It the only thing that could have been creepier in your situation if they would have said, I, I didn't introduce myself because I was so nervous. And so instead, I peered into your window at night and watched you sleep. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow, creepster. It was so weird. Yeah, yeah. it was weird. Uh, so Yeah, Frank, to, Frankie was not creepy. Well, so listeners, be a Frankie. If you ever see us or anyone else you know from the internet out in the real world, just say hi like a normal person. Don't be weird. Can we make that maybe our new tagline, Be a Frankie? Be a Frankie is very fun. I like it. I yeah. like that name. All right. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Here we go. Okay. Okay. So, Seth, I'm curious. How's Lent going for you? Uh, it's actually going pretty well this go around. I like Lent. Um, you know, part, part of... Part of my Lent is that it typically, if you have too much time on your hands, Lent is very hard, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're like giving something up and you have too much time on your hands, because it, invariably, if it's a food stuff, you just start wanting it. Um, but I've been working a lot, and so I don't really have time to eat that much. So mm -hmm. every act of eating is an intentional act. And because every act of eating is an intentional act, it's a little bit easier for me this year to like sit down and stop and think, oh, I shouldn't have that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because this is part of my Lenten discipline. And again, it's the Lenten discipline that then reminds me, oh, I should also um, pause and say a prayer. And so I'm much more mindful about my Lenten practice this year, so far at least. Um, and it's led me to uh, pray a lot more and particularly to pray for uh, Ukraine. Right, right. Cool. Good to hear. Yeah. So, yeah. How's your How's your Lent going? 
It's going, I will say, average. And I think part of it is because I started off a little bit tired at the starting gate. I was already sort of weary from talking about Lint and thinking about Lint from, thankfully, all the places I got to talk about Lint, like various podcasts. So I'm grateful for it. However, it just left me with this weird, I don't know if it's a interview hangover or what. So I started off a little less than enthusiastic as I normally am personally. Mm -hmm. I loved Ash Wednesday, our service, and I I love Lent. You know, my my personality kind of leans into Lent. But um I was reminded of the thing I said again and again in so many interviews uh, that the spoiler alert of Lent is that you will mess up. And the reason is because mm -hmm. that's not really the point. You know, the point isn't yeah, performative right. or to get it right. right or to like, it's not self-improvement in a way. And so I have messed up my fast already. So maybe that's an encouragement to people listening. Um, but I don't feel weird about it. I just kind of brush my, you know, metaphorical arms off. I can't even think of how to finish that weird metaphor um, and just keep going uh, and pray about it. So it's going fine. And maybe other people's lengths are going fine as well. So in the words of uh, Jay-Z, the uh, <laughs> wise poet of our age, yeah, uh, you got to brush that dirt off your shoulder. Is that what you did? I think that's what I tried to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um yeah, no, I I was a little bit the same way. I the first my first Saturday, it was actually I was in Colorado. No, it was Friday. It was earlier than Saturday. I went downstairs and I ordered what was called the Prospector's Breakfast. Um and I <laughs> stunningly remembered not to have the jelly while stunningly not remembering that an English muffin is made of flour. Oh, are you yes. fasting from carbs or gluten or something? Ah, uh, really? It's really yeah. It's it's just really just wheat. Um, wheat, okay. Wheat and sugar. There's a reason for that. The wheat and sugar is so that um, when those things are combined, then that means that I can't eat cereal at night. So it's really a cereal fast. But I knew that was a little bit too broad or too narrow, so I made it a little bit more broad. Anyway, got it. Um, but yeah, I had English muffin. Then I was like, oh shoot, that's made of wheat. Um, <laughs> right. It happens. Didn't didn't think that through. Yeah. yeah. No, so, it totally anyway. happens. Well, listen, you are the uh this this show's foremost expert <laughs> on Lent. Out of the two of Is us. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, that's fair, yeah, right? I, I guess it's fair sort of. Now it's fair, not because I started off being the expert. I learned a lot from writing about it, but it's not nothing beyond that. Well, and, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. As you said, you learned a lot. Um, yeah. And you've been talking a little bit about this idea of vice and virtue and the way that mm -hmm. vices and virtues play into Lent. And, you know, we're not talking about the kind of vices that Kyle uses to hold <laughs> wood together when he's woodworking. This is a different right. sort of thing, right? Yes. So, so walk me yeah. through this. Tell me, what, what is this vice and virtue thing that you keep talking about? This is the framework I used for Bitter and Sweet. But the reason I went this route was because I was really racking my brain before I started writing. What is it that people even want to think about during Lent? You know, Lent is really long. Um, we can't possibly talk about the same thing for seven weeks if you include Holy Week. And um, so I got to thinking, all right, sin. <laughs> A lot of what we do with our Lenten fasts is try to wrestle with the sin that entangles us. Uh, so maybe go there, but uh, that's a pretty broad 
subject matter? Has anyone said anything smart about it? So I started looking stuff up, doing some research and found, of course, lots of really smart people have talked about it. And most of them have been dead a really long time. The ones that have said the best stuff, um, I found, I found tended to be Aquinas and Augustine and Aquinas mainly quoting Augustine. And mm. so I ended up using his philosophy and his thought on sin um, as a way of framing this really broad idea. Now, I will say that this topic, honestly, as I've been flipping through the book along with everybody else, this doesn't really just apply to Lent and then Easter. It's like any time of year, really. So if you're listening to this in like yeah. September, totally applicable. It's not a Lent specific thing. But anyway, anyway, the the brilliance of, of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a Dominican monk in the medieval period a very long time ago, um, was that he really, I mean, not only did he create the Summa Theologica, which is just this like huge volume of work full of syllogisms and complicated language, but ultimately, you know, it's what made him a doctor of the church and maybe the doctor of doctors of the church. But um, he, he also, if you break apart some of his antiquated language, you realize he says things really succinctly and um, simply. So, the concept of a vice and a virtue, or I, let me just start with the vices. It's these seven cardinal sins, but really it's just broad categories through which all the sin that we struggle with here on earth can be categorized. And when we talk about sins, really the, the brilliant thing that he noticed is that sin is really a disordered desire. Like that's basically yeah. all it is, because yeah. if everything good is from God and at the heart of sin, like he makes this really crazy claim that um, everybody is after goodness, like yeah. Hitler was even after goodness, like every single person is after goodness. They just have a messed up way of going about it sometimes um, that even when we sin, we're trying to go after goodness. Now, I'm, I don't want to get into that because it can get really weedy, but. Yeah, so he yeah. talks about sin being just a disordered desire. So these seven vices that he he cataloged really are disordered desires. And then the virtues are their corresponding ordered desires, a.k.a. virtues. Mm -hmm. So this became the scaffolding for the book and really how I've been thinking a lot about just the things that encumber us and the things we want less of. So we make room for the things we want more of. A whole lot lately. So I thought it'd be, I don't know if fun is the right word, but interesting to unpack these seven and just see what people think, see what you think. So yeah. yeah. I, I love it. You know, um, the w when you talk about ordering and disordering, I mean, you know where my head goes immediately to Ignatius, who talked about the same thing, right? Ordering mm -hmm. your attachments and disordering your attachments. And in this week's um, sermon, actually, homily, I always still say sermon. I probably will my whole life. Is that it's okay? It's the Protestant in you. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's never <laughs> going away. You can take the boy out of the Protestant, but you can't take the Protestant <laughs> out of the boy, something like that. Right. Uh, anyway, our priest talked about this very thing, and he talked about how um, the temptations in the desert and, and the ways of overcoming those temptations were actually a, uh, better ways to order affection uh, rather than live into the disordered affections of things like, you know, pleasure or power or manipulation. So, um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of, you know, th this, this thread runs through a lot of, um, sort of Catholic teaching. Um, so it's, it seems completely appropriate to talk about, uh, for Lent. So tell me, how do you sort of recognize practice, 
um, you know, these vices uh, over and against the virtues in this Lenten season? Well, um, I thought it'd be interesting just to kind of talk about one at a time, but not really go into a lot. I mean, we could probably do an episode on each of these if we really wanted to nerd out. But um, to me, when I think about it, and it's mostly just because smarter people have already thought about this, the, the, the core, the foundational vice is pride that really you could see the seed of all other vices come from this main uh, vice. And the reason is because Aquinas defines pride as a desire for excellence and excess of right reason. And it kind hmm. of speaks into that idea of everybody desiring good, something good. And so if you think about pride being a desire for excellence, but it's an excess of of right reason, aka you're losing your mind or you're not thinking straight, then it kind of makes sense why you can see gluttony and greed and all the other ones coming from that. Um, so to me, there's just something really just daggering to the heart that gets right to the point when we think of pride, um, mm. a desire for excellence and excess of right reason. And it also really, to me, convicts me because a desire for excellence is a good thing. You know, it's not just like, you know, the bad guy in black and the good guy in white. It's like, oh, yeah, it is us just twisting something that's a gift from God. Um, yeah. Excellence. But it's 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 out of ordered desire for excellence. Yeah. And I think as we go through these, I mean, I think that's one thing that's really important to note is that underlying all of these, there's a really good, you know, a sacramental good. Right. It's mm -hmm. it's, you know, again, going back to Ignatius, it's it's not bad to eat food or drink wine or, you know, right. have sex or do whatever. It's when those things become disordered attachments and you attach to those gifts over the giver that it becomes a problem. So in this case, right, it's not a bad thing to want to do things well and excellently. And I don't hear you saying that, but what you're saying is when you make that your primary objective and you take uh, a pride in your own excellence over and against um, the excellence, uh, that work in you spiritually, then that's, that's an issue. Is that, that, is that what yeah. I hear you saying? Yeah. And especially when you consider its corresponding virtue, which is humility. Um, and a lot of smart people have said, this is like the virtue of virtues uh, because hmm. Christ was the perfect embodiment of humility. Um, and so if you think of the definition of that being a rightly ordered estimation of excellence, you can kind of see how pride and humility are opposites. And uh, an, another just kind of more, um, I guess, uh, just common vernacular way to say humility. It's just seeing ourselves as God sees us, like basically seeing ourselves the right way that yeah. it, it, it's not a pendulum swing the opposite way. So I talk about this. I have this little brief thing at the beginning of the book that we can also swing the other way with some of these vices mm. to where it becomes a form of legalism or like self-righteousness. And so the pendulum swing of pride is self-loathing. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about humility. It's not thinking you're dirt or hating yourself. It's just seeing yourselves the right way. And um, that's what Jesus did, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a, uh, I, I, there's a, someone who is connected with my family in a very loose way who has this, this saying every morning they stand up and they look in the mirror and they say, I am dirt. I am nothing. I am worthless. Um, and they remind themselves of that every morning before they start their day. To what end? I don't know. I can't imagine that that's psychologically healthy. Right. Um, but the stated <laughs> theological reason for that is, well, it keeps me from 
from becoming prideful. And there seems to be a sense to that, that, that that's kind of like a false humility. That's not what we're shooting for either, is it? Right. In fact, that's an, another form of pride, really, because it's not seeing yourself the right way. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's thinking that you're different from everybody else because God didn't imbue you with infinite value. And so you're, yeah. you're, you're special. Um, yeah. I think a good way to just summarize all this is that you're not that special. You're <laughs> not that special. Thing. We're none of uh, us are that special. That's really So healthy. that's summation number one. You're not right. that special. So <laughs> that feels really uplifting. It does. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I find it genuinely encouraging um, going through these sorts of things because, man, Aquinas just has a really He's just really great at putting things the right way. So yeah. um, that means when it comes to the next one, gluttony, you know, we picture just somebody just eating themselves to death. I don't know, like that terrible 90s movie Seven or um, yeah. just some form of just, you know, Augustus Gloop from Willy Wonka, you know, just slurping up chocolate from the river. Um, and really, the the broad idea of gluttony is simply a disordered desire for good things. So that sounds a little bit like pride. And it's, it's, I mean, birth from the same place, right? Wanting something good. But um, it has to do with stuff like the things in our lives. And so it's just, and it's not desiring just enough of the good things. It's, it's wanting a ridiculous amount or just a disordered desire. And this yeah. is helpful for me to think about because of my particular fast this year. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think to, to me, this is the, the big one that I work on. And part of the reason that I have to work on it so much is one, history of over drinking, right? And that is gluttony. That, you know, that is the very definition of gluttony. If, if you have an alcohol problem or a drinking problem, or if you've nursed something that feels like dependency, that's gluttony. But the other thing is like, I'm relatively tall. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm also, I also have a relatively thin, build i wouldn't say i'm skinny i'm definitely not like skinny but yeah. i hold my weight well and so i can eat a lot um perhaps to the extent of gluttony and um and and, and not really show it as much mm-hmm. um and so this is one of those and also going back to the drinking like i'm an extremely good drinker like i used to tell people if there's one thing that i have a talent for it's like drinking a lot <laughs> without really showing that I've had too much to drink. Yeah. Um, and so this is kind of one of those sort of sins that I can hide. And and mm. um, so for me, gluttony is is one that's constantly sort of on the back burner of my mind and um, that I'm constantly doing things to sort of order my affections appropriately and rightly. And for me, a lot of the vice, the counter vice of temperance um, it, it it actually is an embodied experience. And so I do mm. things like meditate um, so that I don't get anxious and want to drink. I do things like, uh, you know, work out so that I don't want to ruin a good workout with a cinnamon roll. You know, like um, for me, this is a very embodied experience and temper- temperance is, is very embodied too. Yeah, because the definition of temperance is simply a desire to keep those good things in their rightful place. So it's it's yes, the opposite of yes. gluttony. It's not um, the legal is the legalistic pendulum swing is scarcity. So we're not talking about like you know ice cream is evil or even you know a glass of wine is evil. We're talking about keeping it in its rightful place. And I think yeah. that I mean if we know that God's all about 
you know, our heart and about our um, ordered desires being the way he intended them to be, then this makes sense. So it's not like, you know, we look at all these good things in life and feel ashamed for liking them. It's not anything related to that. It's it's about um, our desires. Yeah. And, and to go off of that a little bit, I mean, I wrote this in my first book and my second book. I've talked about this pr- pretty rarely because, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy around the topic. But when I was first in therapy for Uh, over drinking, uh, my therapist said to me, you know, there's going to come a point when you can have a beer or a glass of wine and it's, it'll be fine because you've, you've actually reordered your life. You've dealt with your pain. You're not needing alcohol to, to really mess with the pain anymore. And Hey, this can be a good thing. You know, alcohol can actually be a fine thing. It's a gift of God. Right. And so, um, you know, there are some people and I won't, share whether I am or am not one of those people. There are some people who need to swear the stuff off forever. There are some people who can figure out how to moderate and be temperate and um, remain sober. And our sobriety journey is individual and it's our sobriety journey. Um, But at the end of the day, if you can't live a temperate sobriety, then you're really just not sober. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to put it. Moderation in all things, but moderation can look different to different people. Moderation yeah. might just look like avoiding it altogether because yes. you know you will, you know. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's good. So what's the third what's the third uh, grouping? <laughs> the third one was the hardest for me to write because I wanted to keep this family friendly and it's lust. <laughs> lust is a disordered desire for pleasure. And I mean we all know the what we're immediately thinking of, right? We're thinking mm-hmm. of of, you know, adultery or fornication or, or some form of that. But I think it's helpful to think of it broadly as well, that pleasure is a good thing, especially, I mean, if we can just cut to the chase, its corresponding virtue is chastity. And we have this weird, you know, puritanical version of, of chastity in our minds. But really what that means, it's a rightly ordered desire for pleasure. So it's, it's all about controlling your pleasure. It's not about you know, being a terrible person for loving pleasure. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear <laughs> that because I'm married. So that's a thing. Right. I mean, that would suck if chastity meant no one could have kids. What was the name of the, or, you know, do the things that lead to have kids? Let's be, you know, band chicken, wow, wow, that kind of stuff. Uh, what was the name? Was it the shakers that believed that sex was bad? Oh, there's some subgroup of Anabaptists, right? Like Shakers? Yeah, I think it was the Shakers. I think it was the Shakers, yeah. And as a result, their entire sect and segment like died out. (laughs) Right. Oops. (laughs) Because come on, man. Like pleasure is meant to do something for you. Also meant to propagate the entire world with people. Right. So rightly ordering pleasure. I like that. I like that idea a lot. Rightly order it, yo. I like it. Yeah, and... And those of us who are married, we're supposed to be chaste as well. So chaste does not mean perpetual virginity forever and ever. It means rightly ordered pleasure. So I like it. I like it. All right. Onward. um, I feel like this is one that I could just write a – well, I couldn't write – I could read a book about this. Um, Envy. And the reason I say that is because Aquinas's definition is not at all what one would think. It's not jealousy. It's not – you know, coveting your neighbor's wife. It is sorrow for another's good. And so what he means by that is it's not just that you what, you know, if you've sworn off sugar and you're watching your friend eat a chocolate chip cookie and you wish you could have that too, it's hoping that they 
get sick on that chocolate chip cookie while they're enjoying it. And that's messed up. I hope man. you choke and die. <laughs> but how how often do we do that without even intentionally meaning to? So good yeah. night, Envy's a thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, I this sounds an awful lot like... Actually, I think all of these, now that I'm looking at them, sound an awful <laughs> lot like what's happening over in the Ukraine. Mm, yeah. Somebody yeah. is saying... I hate that you have your land. I hope you Hmm. die in it. And in fact, I'm going to perpetuate your death in it. I want your land back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the corresponding virtue is love, which, you know, volumes have been written about it, but Aquinas's definition cuts to the chase and it's to will the good of the other. And Mm. we talk about this all the time with our kids, or at least I do. And uh, with my students as well, to will the good of the other is not butterfly feelings and it is not even affection. You can be really annoyed at your kids or your spouse or your friends and still love them because you mm. will their good. And yeah, yeah th- that's not what Putin is doing, but that's not what we're doing when we're envious. You know, we have sorrow for another's good. And uh, yeah, this is something I think we all deal with. Don't be a Putin. That's the takeaway here. <laughs> So talk be a Frankie, to me, not a Putin. Be, be a Frankie, not a Putin. That's uh, that's got to go on a coffee mug. Uh, let's go on to the next grouping: greed yeah. and generosity. Talk to me about uh, talk to me about greed. All right, greed is a desire for more than is needed, and generosity. Sometimes people, I think Aquinas also said, charity is its virtue, and that charity is love demonstrated. So if we already talked about love being to will the good of the other, um, it's char- uh, charity is love in action. So it's the love of God and love of others. And it looks like a desire for enough for all. So basically, mm-hmm. if you've got greed, a desire for more than you need, charity or generosity is a desire for enough. And so that doesn't mean a desire to live on a street corner and to you know, have to scrounge for your food. It doesn't make it a bad thing to have a house and a car and, you know, indoor plumbing. It's wanting that for other people too, or wanting what is needed for everybody. And that is manifested in our charity, in how we give, how we care about the world around us. Yeah. And so I think immediately about, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of three things that we try to do uh, at Lent to prepare ourselves for Easter, right? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And it seems to me that almsgiving kind of would would be one of the antidotes here to greed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. And I think the church fathers were pretty smart in seeing the need for these three pillars during Lent, that um, it's not about just, you know, I mean, it is about prayer and it is about contemplation. It is about talking to God about the thing you're fasting from so that you can, you know, make more room for God, but it's also like, okay, now let's roll up our sleeves and do some good with this. And yeah. I think that's that's what charity and generosity are about. So greed, you know, can look like all sorts of things. It's not just money. It's also your time. It's also your attention. It's also your, um, I don't know, your own way, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of ways greed can look. So it's not just Mr. Moneybags. It's also, you know, giving your kid the attention he needs when he needs it. So yeah, yeah. we're all convicted, I think. It, yeah, and 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 to look at your definition, definition, a desire for more uh, than is needed. Uh, I mean, again, like if you're operating out of a sca- scarcity sort of mentality, and so you're hoarding, 
whatever the thing you're hoarding is, that's where you have some work to do in the area of greed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Well, that makes me angry. <laughs> oh, what a segue. Let's talk nice about the segue. next Nice segue. All right. So the next vice is anger. And this is a tricky one, thanks to our English language, because there can actually be a good form of anger. We see this in the Bible, right? Jesus got angry. And so how can we define this in a way that's truly a vice? So what Aquinas says is true anger in a in a negative way is a desire for vengeance contrary to reason. And so mm. this this can look like getting really ticked off at your teacher for giving you a bad grade on that test you did not study for in the first place, or Mm -hmm. um, just really being impatient with the person in traffic in front of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things that we all know what that, that feels like, but it's contrary to reason. And he says that the difference with the righteous anger, the the thing that Jesus displayed is that it's a desire for vengeance aligned with reason, aka Mm. justice, aka God will judge, and uh, we can have hope in that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty straightforward, it seems to me. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. What's uh, What's the opposite of anger? The uh, corresponding virtue is meekness, and this is another way English can throw us for a loop here because we tend to think of meekness with sheep or with being a doormat, you know, Mm -hmm. like just being weak, uh, letting people walk all over them, or maybe just having a timid personality, but it's super not that. The word uh, that Jesus uses for meek is the same word in uh, his time used to describe a horse that had been broken in by its master. Mm. So what that looks like is it's the reining in of a stallion, a really powerful animal, um, you, you know, willing to submit to its bit and bridle and be genuinely useful. So the purest meaning of meek is power under control. So it has Mm, nothing to do with being sheepish. Yeah. I, do too. I like that. I like. I that love it. And if you consider what righteous anger is, that means you can be filled with righteous anger and channel that meekness for good. So, so this is actually like I was kind of joking about the Putin thing, but let's let's take in the uh, current world events as an example of this, and you can see the vice and virtue at play, right? Like you can see the vice of anger, a desire for vengeance contrary to reason, right? I'm going to go try and annex this country that is independent and does not belong to me. And when it doesn't go my way, I'm going to get pissed off and threaten nuclear war. What is that? But vengeance contrary to reason. Like if they can't have, if I can't have them, no one can have the entire world. That is actually vengeance contrary to reason. But then you see on the other side, Zelensky in his, uh, President Zelensky in his uh, room uh, there where he's, you know, whatever his palace or White House or whatever their version of it is, um, saying like, I'm not going anywhere. I am here. I'm going to stand. You can kill me if you want, um, but I'm going to exercise power and we're going to beat you back. I mean, that is power under control. There's no... Mm It, you know, there's there's no sense in which you feel like he's under control, at least if you believe the the sort of modern narratives uh, spun by the media, which I happen to. So mm-hmm. you can see a really good dichotomy there of anger uh, versus meekness. And maybe that's a good sort of example for the difference between uh, anger and meekness. That's a perfect example. Um 
because of what maybe we consider to be meek. I would yeah. not immediately think of Zelensky in full combat gear saying, I need ammunition, not a ride. But you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What else? What is that other than power under control? Right, right. That's perfect. So, all right, let's talk about yeah. the last one. One more set. The last one tends to be probably my crux, the thing that I struggle with. I think all of us can find a little bit of ourselves leaning into one of these vices more than others throughout our lives. And this is mine. Perhaps other people will uh, identify with that. And that is sloth. It is not laziness. That might be what we immediately picture, but it's not. Another word for it is acedia. And a, a term used in, I believe it was the medieval period starting maybe with Dante or so, um, the picture of acedia is the noonday devil. Um, so what Aquinas says a sloth is sorrow for spiritual good. Uh, another way to just say that is the absence of care. So it's it's the meh vice. It's not just it's not just not wanting get to get up off the couch and clean the kitchen. It is not caring about the things you know you want to care about. So it's actual sorrow for good things. And I mean, this can manifest itself as depression, but it can also just look like a plain old vice. And yeah. I understand this one well. Yeah. I have a really good friend um, whose niece when you ask her to do something that she doesn't want to do, like clean her room or pick up the toys or whatever, will say, I can't even want to. <laughs> and, and I feel like I can't even want to is the slogan of sloth. That's perfect. Yeah. I mean, I picture, I mean, God bless him. Of course, I love him. But my 11-year-old son does not care that his room is messy. And so mm -hmm. it is very hard to convince him to want to because he doesn't care. One he way can't or even want so to. He can't even want to. So it's a perfect illustration. If anyone else has someone like that in their life, a kid or whatnot, um, it's it's just um, even wanting all these virtues. You know, we're hearing all these things and we're like, ooh, yeah, temperance, humility, yeah, all good things. Yeah. But sloth is just like, mm, no, thanks. I'm good. I I'm here. Yeah. On, I'll, I'll just stay here. Yeah. Yep. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the corresponding virtue to sloth? The corresponding virtue is diligence. And diligence simply means taking care to do what we value most. So if you think of the practical ways this looks, um, this looks like getting up to do the thing you know you actually care about, even when you don't feel like doing it. So even when your friend's daughter doesn't want to, you do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I, I realized as I started talking, the Noonday Devil illustration actually wasn't from the medieval period. It was from the Desert Fathers, I think in the, what, 200s, 300s. Um, they called it that because it was um, their, uh, like, siesta time, whatever you would call it back then, um, in the desert. So the noonday is when the heat was just pounding down on them. That was when they would go into their tents and take a nap. And the Noonday Devil was basically this temptation to just stay there the rest of the day. Yeah. And, and man, I think that's such an apropos illustration. And we've all been there. You know, we've all been in that state of you want to be diligent, but you just can't seem to get yourself out of the chair. Uh, yeah. Diligence is standing up. It's putting on those shoes to go on your run, even when everything in your body is screaming no. It's it's writing that paper. It's taking that, you know, class. It's doing the thing. It's doing the responsible thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk about all these vices and virtues, seven seven pairs of, yeah. of vices with their corresponding virtues. And and these are things that we need to be looking out for 
in Lent. And I don't necessarily want to go through each one because that would take another hour. But like, how right. do you recommend that we look at these pairs throughout Lent and then um, act on them? How do you how do you recommend that we action, for lack of a better phrase, you know, these vice virtue pairs? Yeah. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons I wrote about it because I wanted like daily little tiny thoughts about each one as I, as I walked through them. So I didn't necessarily want to say like, don't be greedy. It's, you know, I wanted to think through what does that look like? Boots on the ground. Um, for me personally, um, it's the course, you know, Lent having the three pillars, a lot of prayer is geared towards these things, you know? So for me, when I'm going like right now in real time, um, as you're reading through my book, we're talking about gluttony. So for me, a lot of the prayer looks like God help me to just remember what gluttony is and what temperance is, that it's not about me being bad for um, wanting a good thing. It's really about redirecting our focus. I think you've hit on something well, maybe unintentionally when you talked about um, you've been so busy that that's mm-hmm. helped you have a decent Lent at first, I think it's literally redirecting our attention. That could look like, you know, the Sunday school version of scripture memory, but it can also look like, you know, when you're wanting to cave into acedia, go out there and water your garden or just do like, think of a small task you can do. Um, So my fast uh, this year is snacks. Like I, I just Mm. mindless snacking. Um, So I'm just eating during meals is all. And so I have a key time when I want to snack and that's usually like three to 5 PM somewhere around there. And so I'm just working on like, that's when I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to go, I'm going to listen to my audio book. I might return a call. I'm going to walk the dog or whatever. It's just, I mean, it, it sounds awfully human and just, you know, kind of petty and distracting, but I, yeah, giving myself a thing to do helps a lot. Yeah. 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 But I you? think that's, I, well, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is, is saying like, Hey, let's pause, let's stop. Let's examine, you know, some, some of these uh, vices, you know, not, not really an issue for me to be real honest. You know, I, I don't struggle with sloth. I, I actually mm. struggle with the opposite um, of sort of <laughs> overdoing everything, um, which is probably a form of gluttony um, it, operating out yeah. of a scarcity mentality. So I think it's <laughs> it's probably stopping and saying, "Where's the you know the the virtue, the vice virtue uh, pairing that I need to work on the most?" And yeah. then how can I do something to embody something that that sort of attacks the the vice? Yeah, because I think a lot of us with Lent think of um, just the fasting meaning to give something up, but yeah. we never fast for no reason. You know, in the liturgical yeah. calendar, fasting is always followed by feasting. And yeah. so with that, a fast is a preparation. And so if we're if we're giving up something, we are asking God to fill that space up with something else. And we can participate in that by literally, you know, doing something. Totally. Um, and if you're curious, Seth, the uh, corresponding legalism to sloth is workaholism. Oh, so that's I've me. been there. Mm. I've been there before, so I get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that's me. <laughs> um, so, so I guess our closing sort of idea here is, hey, yeah. take some time. Uh, we'll put these vice virtue pairings in the show notes so that you have a yeah. list. You can go look at them and see them. Um, right. And then just spend some time looking at them and saying, is there one or two hopefully not seven that jump off the page at you 
um, that you could just spend some time this Lent mm-hmm. reflecting and stopping and saying, you know what, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to yeah. work to build the the corresponding virtue into my life and to abstain from the vice. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, you might surprise yourself with which one it ends up being. I find this to be true for me just about every year in Lent. I think I'm going in to work on gluttony and it turns out I'm working on anger or something like that. So be open to being surprised. Be open to being surprised. Uh, Be open to uh, life. What life throws at you. Be open to having an encounter with a Frankie and finally be a Frankie. Do you see how I made that move? It only took me like four moves to get there. It was a little painful, but I see it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It was tortured, but it worked. So it worked. Um, yeah. since we're at the end of our uh, show, our time together today, yeah. tell me, Tish, what is one thing that's adding a little uh, beauty to your life? Well, I am part of a neighborhood book club, which has been lovely. And this Monday, we met to talk about our book that I would have never picked out from the library were it not for our group's book. And I'm so glad I did. It is called The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C. Sounds uh, like a book I would never read. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, If you are one of my newsletter subscribers, you saw my review earlier, my video review. Um, So I've already talked about it. I won't belabor it, but it's fantastic storytelling about a people group and a a subculture of tea I would have never in a million years given two seconds of thought about, but it's fascinating. Um, Southern China and the tea, you know, mountains and about a um, minority people group there that are not thought of very often by the entire world. And it's a great story. And it also deals with adoption. So um, I really liked it. And she's a great storyteller. I I now want to read more of her stuff. She was written a whole lot of books and I had never heard of her till this. So the, the tea girl of hummingbird lane by Lisa C. All right, Lisa C. If you're listening, uh, Tish is now (laughs) going to read all your books. So just, just slowly know that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Seth, what is adding more beauty to your life right now? So I don't know if I would say, beauty it is definitely adding <laughs> truth and goodness so maybe that's that a thing yeah um i am reading putin country a journey into the real russia by ann <laughs> garrels and i don't know if you know ann garrels but she was a longtime correspondent for npr um hmm. the story that she tells at the opening of the book is that she she really wanted to spend some time uh in russia and so um she didn't want to necessarily go to moscow right which is like what everybody knows of russia so she took and she didn't have a dart so she took a pencil and she threw it at a map of uh russia and it landed in this very particular sort of remote uh but but largish uh city um hmm. sort of capital of a region in Russia, and she moved there off and on over twelve or thirteen years. <laughs> I can't remember, um, and really just like dug in and got to know the people there, so she could really understand Russian culture. And so she talks a lot about um, how Russia, Russian culture evolved uh, since the fall mm-hmm. of the Iron Curtain, um, mm-hmm. and how it sort of survived the Boris Yeltsin years and transitioned into the Putin years, which which really she paints as years of an ordered stability, even if it's not the kind of ordered stability that the West would sort of hope for um, and mm-hmm. how that was sort of an antidote to the Yeltsin years. And as a result of that, how a lot of people kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's what makes them like him. Um, huh. So she, she tells stories from all different segments of life. I mean, there are adoption stories, there are stories about sexuality. There are stories about what it means to be a family, about what it means to be a doctor, 
Um, she just kind of tells these little slices of life from various people. I mean, it's really interesting because you can kind of see what makes uh, a, a Russian sort of a Putin supporter or or also what's sort of like leading the people who uh, would resist uh, Putin's reign. And, and she's obviously wicked sharp and wicked smart and a great writer. So it's just wow. a really good slice of life reading. It's very helpful to understand uh, what's going on in our world right now. Um, and I, I honestly, I wish there was no reason for me to read it, but since I am, I will say if you're into yeah. this sort of stuff, it is well worth the read. I, it sounds exactly like what I need to read because I want to learn and I, yet I want to learn uh, through stories. Because I learn better. Yeah. Well, because I'm a human. We all learn best through stories and real people and their situations. And it sounds like that. So thanks for the well. And the, yeah. And the other thing about it is, you know, I was sitting with a friend yesterday for coffee and he said something that was really funny. He was like, you know, all the people who were experts on, uh, you know, a race and then became experts on COVID are now experts on uh, Russia. <laughs> and we kind of had a good uh -huh. laugh about that. Um, but, but one of the things that, you know, when you read stories from an actual expert, you start to realize like, this is very complicated and very complex. And the people of Russia, um, are 100%, um, uh, you know, deserve, they 100% deserve dignity and they deserve for us to listen and they deserve a voice, uh, with respect to their perspective, even if we disagree with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so by listening to an actual expert tell the actual stories, you begin to see, oh, this is way more complicated than we think. Yeah. And it, I would think a book too, like versus just a Twitter feed, you know, totally. like actually deep dive versus just hear the talking points that may or may not be true. Yeah, totally. totally. She may have a great Twitter feed, though. I don't know. I'm not on Twitter so. for a while. But <laughs> right. uh, when I am, I'll check her out and I'll, I'll yeah. let you know. Cool. All right. Well, it is time to wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all our episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. As always, if you like the show and what we're doing, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. You can find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at adrinkwithafriend.com. And thank you so much for those of you who've already done that. We're really grateful. Uh, let's see. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? They can find me at Seth Haynes. Well, just go to my Substack. I think it's sethhaines.substack.com or is it the other way around? Substack.sethhaines.com. I never no, can remember. It's the first one and you've said it a ton. So I think it's, it's funny. so messed yeah. up. I never can remember. Sethhaines.substack.com. <laughs> All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth. And we'll be back here at the table with you soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>